We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 today and continuing our series in the pastoral epistles. And this is an intense section of our Bibles that we need to look at and we need to look at carefully. Now we set this whole kind of paragraph section up last week by saying that we have a goal when we gather here on Sunday morning. The reason we all gather in this place, the reason we're here for public worship is to look upward to God in prayer and praise and to look outward to the world in longing love, right? That's the twofold dance that we do in public worship. Truly, there are hundreds of obstacles that keep us from that, keep us from achieving that aim. But Paul wants to highlight three of those obstacles here for the Ephesian context, which has import for our context. We talked about last week men's anger and women's dress. These are two things that inhibit this kind of worship. And today we're going to talk about gender roles and how that can become an obstacle to this kind of worship. So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 11. Hear now God's word. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us all hearts that are quiet and submissive to your word this morning. I pray that you would teach us and change us. You can do that. You promise to do that by your spirit. And so we ask for it boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I entitled this sermon, Gender Games, to be cute. But Paul is basically saying it's confusing to live in a world that's half male and half female. It's not only confusing to live in that kind of world, it's confusing to worship in that kind of world. We have gender confusion. If you don't know what I mean by gender confusion, just hang out in a middle school cafeteria for an afternoon, and you'll see what I'm talking about, or Jillian's for that matter, in the Vista. And you'll see what I mean by this confusion about how we begin to relate to one another. Well, Paul delivers to us a very dense passage. In five verses, he wants to give us two instructions, and then he wants to support those with two Bible references, and then he wants to give us two exhortations for the way forward. Now, usually I frown on a six-point sermon with subpoints and caveats, but I think this is such an important passage that we must walk line by line through God's word and understand exactly what he is saying to us and how we apply this in our church context today. So let's begin by the two instructions. They're there in verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul is giving us two instructions. One is stated positively. This is what I want women to do. And one is stated negatively. This is what I I forbid them from doing in the church service. So let's begin with the positive. Let a woman learn quietly and submissively. Now, what Paul is doing here is he is carving out space in the public worship service for our women to have free, unrestrained access to God's word. Now, that's actually not a given in Paul's context. That's not a given in the first century ancient world. There were many places where women were inhibited from learning. They couldn't learn. They couldn't learn peaceably. In fact, 
within the Jewish faith, there were some strands who had very extreme views on this. And Paul, of course, came out of Judaism when he came to faith in Christ. And there are some rabbis who taught it would be better for the Torah to burn than to be found on a woman's lips. I mean, that was some of the thinking in Paul's day. And standing over and against that, Paul says, we will have nothing to do with that here in this church and in every church. In every church, the gospel is preached. Our women in our midst will have full and free access to God's word. It's very sad and very ironic that some who, who take a misogynist interpretation of this passage against women inhibit the very thing that Paul is trying to achieve. He wants to get full and free learning to women, and there are some who inhibit that based on this passage, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Well, he gives two qualifiers to the learning. He says it's to be done quietly and submissively. Now, quietly could mean peaceably, or it could literally mean quietly, without sound. But either way, we're only now talking about the public time of teaching of God's word. Okay, when Paul zeroes in on this, we're now talking about what's happening right now, the sermon. We are not talking about announcements. We're not talking about prayer. We're not talking about testimonials. We're not talking about leading in worship. Women can fulfill all of these in a public worship service. What we are speaking about specifically is the teaching role of the pastor. We're talking about an ordained man stepping into the pulpit and opening up and expounding God's word and for us to listen quietly. Now, truly, this command to listen quietly, to hear God's word quietly, is not just given to women. In other places in Scripture, this is given to both men and women in some way or another. All of us are to approach God's word peaceably and quietly and listen for what he has to say to us. Now, it's been amazing in this first year of the life of our church, CPC. I feel like we've had more distractions in our Sunday morning teaching time and worship than I've ever experienced in my entire church experience leading up to this point. We've had more people wander in and interrupt the service. Um, Based on a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you ever see somebody come in, which we love, I love that we're an open door. I love that we're on Main Street. I love that people are uninhibited to walk in and connect with us. But if you ever see somebody wandering and perhaps not in their right mind and distracting others from hearing God's word, you have every right as a believer to jump up and gently say, come with me. Let's go out to the Welcome Center. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I get you anything? You, When you do something like that, you are protecting this space for us as a body to listen quietly and peacefully to God's word. When somebody, man or woman, stands up in the middle of a sermon, which has happened here at CPC, and interrupts the sermon, we stand on passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and shout them down. Because God is speaking right now. He's speaking through his word and through his servant. And all of us are to listen quietly. And God is not going to interrupt himself by having somebody else stand up with a word from the Lord. We shout that person down. We lead the distracting person out of the sanctuary so that a peaceful hearing and receiving of God's word will reign. Well, then he says, with all submissiveness, a woman's learning when she's sitting under God's word is not just quiet with her mouth, but it's submissive. It's quiet with her heart. Isn't there a a type of listening you can do without saying a word, but your heart is raging? There's no place for that in sitting under God's word. Uh, Paul is saying, I want a woman to learn quietly, but I also want her to learn submissively. I want her to defer to God's word and to receive it with open hands. Now remember, 
we are talking about the public teaching time in the worship service. When Paul uses the word submissiveness, he uses it here, and he uses it in a marriage between a wife and a husband. We do not find in Scripture this general aura of submissiveness between the female sex and the male sex, right? You, you don't have this kind of deferment that happens generally. It happens here in the context of the church with ordained male eldership. If you are a female employer, you do not submit to a male employee. We're not talking about that. If you are a female and you're standing in line at McDonald's and the male in front of you says you should really try the filet of fish, you don't have to try the filet of fish. Get a Big Mac. Get whatever you want. We're not talking about this general deferment, although sometimes this word submissiveness gets yanked out of there and used in all these contexts. We're talking about a woman learning with submissiveness to God's word. And truly, the same could be said for everybody who's in the worship space, right? This same kind of command is given to males and females that all of us, we not only listen quietly, but we listen submissively. We take all of our opinions, all of our rights, all of our cares, all of our anxieties, and they are deferred to God's word. And all of us receive with a posture of quietness and submissiveness. So that's his first instruction. One a woman to learn quietly and submissively. And then he gives the negative instruction. A woman may not teach or exercise authority over a man. Now I think this is becoming more and more clear to us because we've located it in the context of a worship service and we've located specifically in this context, the sermon, the main teaching body of the service. This will only be held by ordained men and it will not be held by women. That's what Paul is saying here. We are not talking about teaching and authority right now outside of the church. We're not talking about what happens in politics or what happens in business or what happens in the military or what happens in a think tank or an exchange of ideas. We are only now specifically speaking about what happens in the main teaching time, the central teaching time of the church. You know, we could, if we had time, do a biblical survey of how and when women speak to what kind of crowd outside of this main teaching time. All of us have opinions about that. We need to center those opinions on God's word. But whatever your opinion is for when a woman can teach and to who, it must take into account places outside of the worship service where women teach to mixed groups, okay? You must account for the fact in your theology of women that Priscilla, alongside her husband Aquila, pulled aside Apollos and taught him God's word in Acts 18. You must account for that. You must account for the fact that in the church of Corinth, we have women prophets who speak God's word in 1 Corinthians 14. You must take into account the fact that women held ministry and leadership positions. According to Romans 16, you must take into account your theology, the fact that Paul and his missionary co-workers was, was armed with a fifth of them being women. All of these things are true, and however you begin to think and theologize about a woman's teaching role outside of the church, in a Bible study, in a prayer meeting, in other kinds of groups and settings and ministries, you must account for these kinds of passages in God's word. Well, Paul doesn't leave these two instructions kind of hanging out there in the gender netherworld. He, he brings them in and he ties them to scripture. He gives us two biblical supports for this. And he finds those in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 in the creation and the fall. So let's look at those. First, we talk about creation. Verse 13. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. No kidding, Paul. My five-year-old could have told you that. What are we getting at here? Why, why mention that? Paul is bringing us back from this conversation in Ephesus 2,000 years later to the created order. And he's saying, remember, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, if you are egalitarian in your approach to God's word, if you believe that there is no distinction between a male and a female, they're identical and their roles are identical, you'll be suspicious of what Paul is doing here. It feels like he's grasping at straws to you, just trying to make a case based on the fact of a coincidence that Adam happened to pop out first and then Eve, and and that's kind of how we got our created order. But if you understand the biblical complementarian approach, that men and women are different and they're unique and they serve different roles, then you will see that begin to be sown into the created order. It's no coincidence that Adam was created first out of dust. It's no coincidence that Eve was then created out of Adam's body to be a helper suitable to him. This is, this is part of the fabric of creation and Paul is calling us to remember the, the structure of the created order when we think about the relationship between men and women. Well, then he talks about the fall in verse 14. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We're speaking, of course, of the fall, this scene in Genesis chapter 3, where um, Eve is found with the serpent in the garden and she is being tempted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbade either of them to eat from. And she's standing there and Adam's standing there and she takes the fruit first and tastes it and then she gives it to Adam. And Paul says, see what's happening here? Eve sinned first, not Adam. Now what we're not saying is that Eve was gullible Therefore, women are inherently gullible. Therefore, they shouldn't be teaching. If that was Paul's point, if he was saying she fell first because she was more likely to do that by her nature, then we wouldn't be talking about women's authority over men in the church place. We'd be talking about their authority, period, right? A woman should never teach or have any kind of authority over anybody, kids included, if they are inherently gullible. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying when you rewind to the created order, when you watch this scene, male headship is undermined and Eve switches places with Adam. They do opposite and twisted roles from each other where Eve now becomes the chief decision maker and the shepherd and the one leading in their marriage. And Paul is crying out, this is wrong. Something is jacked up when we see this interaction between Eve and Adam because Eve makes the decision and Adam, who has been created to be her shepherd and her helper and her protector, stands passively by and receives the sin that Eve partakes in. That's wrong. That's not how this world was created. And Paul is referring us to that to remind us about the created order. Now, it's very interesting that in 1 Timothy, we're talking about the church, and in Genesis 2 and 3, we're talking about creation and marriage. But there is a very strong parallel in the relationship to a wife and her husband and women in a church and its ordained male leadership with respect to submission and authority. We're going to get back to that parallel in closing. But let's talk about the two exhortations he gives us to lead forward by. He's given us the two instructions. He's given us two biblical supports for them. And then he says, this is the way forward. This is how we proceed. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. 
Paul, Paul, Paul. You, you just can't say stuff like this, man. What are you doing? I don't feel bad so much for Paul as for young Timothy, who now has to take this letter to Ephesus with these powerful, combative, vocal Ephesian women and say, look, y'all, you're going to be saved through childbearing. Now, we know that Paul is not talking about a salvation by procreation, right? He can't possibly be talking about that because we read in our Bibles from cover to cover that salvation is by God's grace alone. We have access through faith alone in the sacrificial, penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ alone. That's salvation cover to cover. And when you get to grad school in theology, you're going to learn a very important interpretive tip. You never let an unclear passage trump a gazillion clear passages, right? If you've always been reading in your Bible that salvation is this way, and then you get to Ezekiel and you read something you don't understand, that doesn't trump everything else. So too with this. We know Paul can't possibly be talking about a different kind of salvation. What he's doing here is pleading once again for gender sanity, He's pleading with these grasping and fighting and argumentative and vocal Ephesian women to reject the heresy that they're believing and teaching in the church and to re-engage in God's created order. And one of the ways to describe this created order, one of the best ways to describe the unique difference between a man and a woman with respect to their roles is to say women alone can bear children. It's a noble and a wonderful thing to be a wife and a mom. I urge you, don't run from that. Don't denigrate that in your heresy, but embrace that and enjoy that. Now, for sure, there's going to be some women in our midst here at CPC who will be called to singleness. God will call you to that, just like he called the Apostle Paul, and and you will not experience this childbearing. There are some in our midst, God forbid, who will be widowed or who will experience infertility. We're not saying here in this passage that that woman is any less than another woman, but far be it, woe to the person, man or woman, who denigrates this responsibility of human beings, men and women, to join together and for women to bear children and become wives and moms. He's saying don't denigrate that. Enjoy and embrace that. But secondly, he goes on to say, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What he's saying here is we began with good works, we're ending with good works. This is the way we demonstrate true faith in God. This is how we demonstrate that we have access to this mediator between God and men, is that our life is an example of good works, and that is how he exhorts our women forward. Do this, be this kind of woman. Well, I alluded to a parallel before that will help kind of wrap this wily passage together. We've got these two instructions. We've got these two biblical supports. We've got these two exhortations. How do we, how do we bring this together in a cohesive whole and think about gender relationships in the church? Here's the parallel. Women are to the ordained male leadership of the church as a wife is to her husband. Women are to the ordained male eldership of the church, not individual elders, but as a session. Women are to the session as a wife is to her husband. Just as a wife submits to and serves her husband, just as she truly encourages him, just as they're joined to one flesh and she brings their marriage to a place that a man alone could not achieve, so also the women of this church submit and serve under the ordained male leadership of this church. 
They truly help and encourage us. They truly bring us as a church body to places that we couldn't be as a male-only congregation. And in turn, the husbands and the elders of the church, they don't lord this authority. They don't take advantage of this headship. They don't, we don't cover our ears to sensible and wise advice from our women. We take our cues from Jesus and we lay down and die for our bride and for his bride together. That's the relationship between the ordained men in this church and the women who are in this church. This is the play that we do together. We take our cues from marriage, which takes its cues from the gospel that Jesus lays his life down for us. Women of CPC, you are doing these very things. I encourage you, I exhort you, you are doing these things. The Elizabeths, the Ksenias, the Kentras, you are doing evangelism in the neediest corners of our city. The Terras, you've left home and family to plant a church in a new area. The Miriams, the Terries, the Nancys, you roll up your sleeve and you serve our church week by week. The Cheryls, the Kellys, the Candices, you all are teaching our next generation to believe and live out the gospel. The Jeanettes, the Stephs, the Catherines, you are saying no to very good ministry opportunities, to say yes to the great ministry opportunity, to be a wife and a mother. You're not going to find these CPC women in a male-ordained session meeting with authority over the church. You're not going to find these women standing in this pulpit giving the main body of teaching for the church. You're not going to find them doing that. You're going to find them relating to this church much as a wife relates to her husband. She's serving, she's submitting for the sake of this church and for the sake of this city, and in turn... When you see the male eldership of this church, you will see them relating to these women, much as you see a husband relate to his wife, laying down and dying for them. Any person who walks in off the street and sees this beautiful gospel complementarian dance between men and women in the worship service out of the American quagmire of over-sexualized gender confusion that they came from will see this and declare, O-M-G, oh my gender. What is going on here? Who are these people and why do they do this one, one another and what is their story? And you and I will tell them the hope within us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have created us in your image, male and female, you have created us. I pray and I plead that we would learn as a church what it looks like to do church half male and half female, that we will enjoy this complementarian dance so that the attention gets off of us and on to looking upward in prayer and praise and outward to the world in longing love. You can do this in our midst, so we ask boldly in Jesus' name. Amen.